Today's podcast is sponsored by Corey. CoreyWine.com, that's K-A-U-R-I-W-I-N-E.com for those of you who don't understand my American accent. Uh, they specialize in organic yeast and nutrients. Uh, I use their products, including uh, I've got some experience with their barrels. Um, they import premium oak barrels from top French and American barrel producers, Sorry and Loire. Great, great cooperages. Uh, again, I have firsthand experience with these cooperages, uh, both with Chardonnay. And, uh, you know, I think Chardonnay, you know, really expresses oak, so there's no hiding uh, any clumsiness in there, and these were definitely great. They're always passing uh, through the guys from Kari, so uh, drop Dean Wishart an email or one of the other folks at Kari, especially if you're over in Australia. Uh, they're always out in the field showing trials, really trying to push the edge, uh, push the limits with research, and I'm sure they'd be happy to show you some oak trials of what they got going on. And guess what? They're affordable. I'm not going to give you a price because I don't know it, but go to their website and touch base. They'll make you a deal. That's kariwine.com, K-A-U-R-I-W-I-N-E.com. We're also sponsored by Decibel Wines. The pre-order is up now for the very first ever Testify Red. That's 100% Malbec. Uh, that's come out that I've done uh, to some rave reviews by Robert Parker's Wine Advocate, Sam Kim's Wine Orbit, Raymond Chan's Wine Review. It's definitely been my most lauded and applauded wine uh, I've released yet. And, you know, that's the whole point behind Testify. It's sort of hand on heart. It's my best effort to date. Uh, really pure expression of Gibble Gravel's Malbec and certainly the best Malbec I feel I've ever made. And, you know, I'm loving that we held back this for, you know, held this back for about 15 months in bottle before release. We really took our time with the packaging. It's got, you know, a really cool uh, label and yeah, just sort of fun story behind the whole thing. So obviously makes for a great gift if you're thinking about that. But, you know, get a six pack, lay some down, try one now, try one every six months or so. Uh, but don't expect it to last very long. Only 210 six-packs produced and released of this wine. So very limited release, and uh, I'm excited to get it out there. Just go to decibelwines.com to order one of those beautiful six-packs we're doing with free shipping. Uh, you can pre-order it now. The official release will be next week uh, when you can get, I think you can get, we'll be able to get individual bottles, certainly three-packs. Uh, that'll be from basically July 24th on on uh, places like the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. as well. Just visit decibelwines.com, click Shop Decibel Wines, and then choose your flag. It's very easy. There's also the full range of Decibel Wines up there, and if you use the promo code DBPODCAST, you get 10% off your order. Really? Come on, that's too much. I'm too nice. I'm too nice to you guys. Okay, Willie D., take it away.
Today on the podcast, we have Peter Robertson from Brookfields Vineyards. Uh, Peter and his wife, Sharon, established, I think we talked about somewhere in the 70s, where he established Brookfields Vineyards. He's just seeped in history, and so is that place. He, uh, you know, is one of the first people making fine wines uh, and had, you know, true vision to achieve what he has achieved. Uh, it's a real family affair. His daughter, Rachel, runs the functions there. They do weddings there all the time. Uh, it's just like a real warm place. You know, so many wineries you pull up to and they're austere and intimidating. And uh, as soon as you pull into Brookfields, you feel like, yeah, I could hang out here and have a glass of wine. And him and his winemaking and viticulture team includes uh, Carl Nicholson. They're just cranking out great wines all the time. I, I can't remember ever opening a Brookfields wine that I didn't enjoy and didn't have warmth and character to it. Uh, they can be found on brookfieldsvineyards.co.nz. They're on Instagram at brookfields underscore vineyards, and they keep a good job of updating that. Uh, they're also on Facebook, and I have to say a huge part of my education uh, when I first moved to New Zealand was going to the regular Thursday afternoon Brookfields tasting uh, that still happens to this day. Uh, we talk about it a bit on the podcast, but it was a huge part of my New Zealand wine education. Uh, and I've since told other people that just moved to Hawke's Bay that it should be mandatory in their education. Uh, also about Australia and South Africa, two places that I certainly needed uh, advice on and uh, help with my palate. And, you know, it's nothing like tasting blind and being surprised by wines to, you know, to learn. So, uh, yeah, he's just been a good friend to me right when I moved here and a big influence on me. I sort of think like if I'm, you know, if I'm living a, a life in wine like Peter Robertson is, then I'm probably doing something right. So anyway, let's talk to Peter. some plants and a few more plants uh, this winter. Where is the Malbec vineyard? Well, we have Malbec at Ohiti and uh, and at David Wherry's in the Tukituk Valley. Oh, in Tukituk, okay. Yeah. Uh, we've started, by the way. Oh, cool. Okay. <laughs> Just did my sound check by asking you about Malbec. Um, but that's probably a really good place to start as... Uh, um, the fact that you've got sort of vineyards that you've worked with all over the place, right? Well, well, we, we only buy grapes in from two other sites as such. Uh, Johnny Lyons, just down the yeah. road from here. Yeah. That's the hillside, Sarah? Yeah. yeah. And uh, and David Weary uh, in the Tukituk Valley, Moore Road. Uh, have you uh, had your ups and downs with Sarah the last few years like everybody else with cold rain and things like that or has it been more kind to the hillside uh we have Sarara at Ohiti and that's in stones and uh it's doing very nicely good so yeah we've got two good sites for Sarara. yeah um well yeah we might as well start back to the beginning you realize I think Carl may have mentioned this that uh 
we did a recording, I think when I was at EIT and that has actually, and I just interviewed you for a paper that I was doing, like just to, I didn't feel like writing it down. So I sat a little recorder down and that could have been the seed of what's turned into this whole podcast, you know, was I thought after that, uh, I honestly, really after that, I thought, uh, cause you told me some history, which we'll go back over today that I thought, man, there's not enough of this being written down or recorded or put into, uh, into the archives for, for people. And, you know, this medium, I think, uh, Mark Sweet's book was pretty cool last year that came, or a couple years ago that came out. I think stuff like that's really important. Um, but this medium, uh, for the long conversation, I think is tough to substitute. You know, everything's now bits and bobs. I saw, uh, Yvonne on the news this morning on the morning show or whatever, just a clip on social media and she did great, you know, she's good, whatever, what, good what she does. I was like, it's too short, you know what yeah. I mean? And everything was kind of just quick. And I said, talk about Hawkspace Chardonnay and talk about Syrah, you know, and it was, you know, it was all a bit, you know, uh, chopped up and, and ready to go where um, I think sometimes it's just good to sit down and talk, particularly about wine where it's like a slower process and can't we just relax a little bit, Peter, you know, so. Sounds good. <laughs> um, so... From my memory, it was uh, McDonald Winery. Is that where? But did it start before that from you? It was McWilliams Wines. McWilliams, okay. Under Tom McDonald, and uh, yep, that was seventy-four. Yeah, and and was that your first winemaking gig, or? It was. I'd left. uh, I'd done a degree down at Otago in biochemistry, and then I did a post grad at Lincoln. That's before the post-grad uh, winemaking courses and uh, it came up here en route to, to Australia or South Africa and I'm still here <laughs> and uh, rang up McWilliams Wines, thought I'd get a vintage job and uh, yeah, it just grew from there. Mm, that was 74? Yes. Yeah. And what was going on then? What uh, what were you guys growing and putting out? Oh, I was the days of Moloturga. <laughs> Dreadful variety. I, I don't like it. Yeah. Hence, we planted Pinagree at Brookfields early on. Uh, but uh, it was a good place to start. And, uh, of course, uh, Mr. McDonald, as we all called him, uh, was very generous with wines. And uh, one uh, uh, was able to taste a lot of uh, imported wines, French wines especially. And... Uh, and it was a, a place to learn. Where, and where was it exactly? That was Faraday Street. Far- oh, that yeah, that little turnaround. Yeah, okay, that's yeah, pretty we, tight in there. Yeah, well, we we did quite a, a few million liters there. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, I, st- I uh, once was at a house across, like right across the street from there, and was looking over, like that's it there, and it looked like you could just back the trucks in and way they would go and it had like a loading ramp kind of there yeah it, it it was as far as design probably some of the older wineries down in provence are the closest uh, yeah i could link it to <laughs> right in town as well and um and how long before you split off to i was there three years so i did a year in the cellar as foreman and then uh um, sadly, Dennis Costa, who had been the chemist there for many years, died, passed away, and uh, 
I I was then uh, chemist and uh, I was there with Evan Ward and then he's somebody I'd like to sit down and talk yeah, with. Yeah, no, we we worked well together. And then after I'd left, Alwyn, of course, uh, joined the team. You guys went on to do great things on your own. Different you know? things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and you just said, this is a site, this is where I'm going to f- make Brookfields, or you t- was it a long process, or just let me just go do this kind of thing? Hawke's Bay has been very good to me. Within a year of living here, I'd built a house. You know, I came here with no money, mm-hmm. and uh, so Hawke's Bay has, has just been very good to me. I love the climate. Uh, I have another passion in horses, and uh, and so I've, I've been able to, to make wine my work and, and still have horses, mm. which is great. Uh, oh, so is, was that part of the decision of where you wanted I to go? So. I yeah. just why would I move Yeah, things yeah. were happening? And and then uh, I went to the freezing works, worked there night time, and the money was very good, and uh, bought Brookfields, uh, and it just grew from there. Yeah, yeah. It's got a feeling like that when you go to that place, that it's, uh, yeah, feels a little real homey there when I, whenever I go there. When I first moved here, that was the feeling I got. I think, yeah, I can come here and hang out once a week and go to this tasting and, yeah. and uh, you know, hang out with these people. And at that time, you said you put in Pinot Gris. What other, what other thing were you growing? Um, earlier, golly, you're pressing buttons now. Yeah. yeah. Tremina. Um, Cabernet, of course, having worked with uh, Tom McDonald. And, uh, but it was, it was slow in the early days. Uh, we started making Pinot Gris in the mid '80s, and uh, uh, Cabernet in the early '80s. Uh, we recent, well, recently, three years ago, cracked a, a bottle. My daughter was born in '85, and uh, so 2015, we cracked a bottle of what was the reserve Cabernet, and. It was still holding up well, so that was a thrill. So, yeah. but it was early days, and and the industry, of course, was very different then. And uh, you know, I, I Jack Ellis, who owned the winery, he ultimately came to me one day and said, "Peter, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse." <laughs> and uh, he wanted to sell it; he had inherited it. Uh, Jack was more interested in engineering and. Uh, so yeah, I was a bit lucky. Yeah, yeah, well, it's good hang around. Sometimes good things happen. Yes. And you said the industry was quite different then. Where were the wines going? Who was drinking them? Was it just pretty local or? Well, at McWilliams Wines, we were thrilled. We were selling Spritzig to Fiji. Oh. <laughs> like it, export was zilch, minimal. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and. So what's happened in the last 40 years is, is nothing short of phenomenal, well, just for the whole New Zealand industry. Yeah, so yeah, it's a pretty crazy story. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it is. It's wild. Well, it certainly got my attention, you know, and that was 20 years into it probably or 15 years into the big boom. Well, uh, I, I was lucky enough to taste Tom McDonald's Cabernet, especially as 51 and, uh, and later ones, and... 
you could see the potential. There was potential here. Where were those sites? Where was that fruit coming off of? Uh, the the best ones I felt came from Church Road. Yeah, from over yes. in the, right in Taradell there. Yes, and uh, you know at that point in time, uh, some came from uh, Tokitup, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then there were a number of other sites. But from memory, they they were certainly the two best sites. And lo and behold. I ended up uh, drawing uh, grapes from the Weary family, which is just over the road from, you know, the Tokitok site. Yeah, yeah, so it's all comfortable and ties into the story. And you had no idea what clones or anything like that at that stage? Oh, they were just mass selection on those days. Uh, There was no LC-10 out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of that, I thought that was pretty interesting that... uh, I speak, you know, I used to, obviously used to work over at Paratua, and Jason had mentioned when they were establishing Paratua that um, I think you had mentioned the 15 clones. You guys were talking about the different clones on the um, at Paratua, and it turns out that LC, and I can say this from experience, the LC10 on those bridge pot soils aren't as good as the 15 is over there, whereas... Everybody loves LC10 on the gravels, it seems like. Love stones. Yeah. So being a bit sort of chunkier soils over this way, the 15s always perform better every year I was there. LC10 seems to be getting better. Maybe it's with deeper roots. Yes, uh, I agree with that. I, I certainly think you need a little bit of age in the vine. Hmm. A little, but yeah, They're gaining intensity, I would say, mm. and gaining character. But uh, even, you know... 13, 14, which were great years for us there. Uh, the 15s were far and away. Clone 15 was far and away. Um, better wines, more intense, more character. Uh, nothing really wrong with the LC10, but just kind of. Uh, so it's it's pretty interesting. You get uh, caught up in how much you love a clone, but you could just screw it up anyway. You know? Well, LC10 ripens about a week earlier than the old mess selection. So... For Ohiti, uh, it's the difference between harvesting at Anzac weekend, so to speak, and the bloody rain about fall, and harvesting at, say, 18th, 19th, or 20th of April. Yeah. There's a big difference. Oh, that, it's... That's a late season, mind you. But, uh, no, it's, it's I love it. And over the years, have you seen or have you been – intimidated at all by any trends or not I'm, and I'm talking more climate trends here and and you know speaking of timing and things like that have you seen a are things looking earlier are they are we getting more rain do you think or is it just certain cycles and you know we're talking 40 years you could probably comment on right not to, not to date it, you too much but <laughs> I, I do believe if we forget global warming there are bigger cycles that take place. And uh, at Brookfields, they got frosted in 1947. I don't think Brookfields is... Well, we've got a windmill over the road now, but I've never been frosted at Brookfields, whereas the Alice's, they used to have to put out the, the burners, etc. I do believe there is a, a, a bigger cycle, and uh, strangely enough, 
at Ohiti the last two seasons, we haven't spun the windmills. Yeah, yeah, no. I know they've spun over this side of the, the river because I hear them in the morning. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, for whatever reason at Ohiti, it's, it's, it's been quite, quite good. So, yeah, it's interesting times. Yeah. But you think it's more of a trend and, well, storm-wise too. I mean, it just seems like, I, I don't know, I laugh when it's like every year we're going to get rain in March. It's, if we don't get it, it's a surprise, you know? Yeah. And so I've experienced that. And when we came out the other end, and this is somebody who stepped in from not knowing anything about wine growing and not knowing anything about the region, but all those years turned, you know, except for the major cyclone years, which were sort of one and seven or something like that, that by the time he came out the other end, oh, it's great vintage, you know, <laughs> it's just a bit of a panic right in the end that, that somewhere in that March time, you know, right before, you know, the whites come in and what's going to hang on. You might have a vineyard that's struggles or something, but overall it seems to be a pretty similar trend every year, you know. I don't crop heavily, so we only put down two canes. That's probably going back to Tom McDonald. Mm-hmm. Um, but equally elsewhere in the world. And uh, we we do a lot of thinning. And uh, I do leaf plucking. Uh, so I essentially plan for the worst during the growing season. Yeah. And... Uh, that way we tend to come out okay. Ahiti is quite sheltered. Um, I'm very one-eyed about Ahiti. It's it's a magnificent site. And the fact that we're on stones and it's free-draining, it, it just has so much going for it. So I can walk across the street to that hill. I walk up there, get a little exercise sometimes, and I can see that whole block over there. Is that everything you take from that block or is there a couple other growers over there no i used to lease another block but uh, i ceased leasing that once uh, i had all the lc10 into production and uh, so i've got enough cabernet and as i say uh we, what have i got about three hectare of cabernet two hectare of syrah it's uh, all in all i've got about 17 hectare in production and from what, you know, taking your uh, amazing winemaking out of the equation, what do you see the wines that come off of that compared to, say, the gravels or bridge pie or something? One or- thing that struck me years ago when uh, tasting wine at the Mission, uh, because they pull quite a lot of fruit from the guns, the the, the wines from the Ahiti Valley are, are very fruit-driven, mm. and, and that's what I picked up on. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. A little more fleshy fruit. Yes. But brighter slightly too. And uh, initially when Ahiti was planted, it was planted for us. Well, half it was, and, and then some was planted for Crossroads. And then I picked up a quarter share holding, and then Brookfields ended up buying the rest of Ahiti. Uh, so in a way, I've sort of grown into it, and... Uh, uh, we've replanted half of Ahiti, and I, I like to think I've got my plantings right now. You don't always get it perfect straight off. Uh, but, yeah, it's just a wonderful sight. Uh, I love being there first thing in the morning. You can cut the year with a knife. It's so fresh. Yeah. And uh, in the summer, it is extremely hot. So as a result, we do make uh, 
Cabernet year in, year out as a single varietal. Mm-hmm. And not many can do that. And uh, from my experience, I always saw you on a tractor quite a bit. Is that still the case these I days? I still do a fair bit of tractor. Yes. Yeah. You know, I love it. And, uh, and you seem to enjoy it. And yeah, no. That's no. great to be outside, isn't it? It is. Yeah. No, Very lucky to be able to do that. Don't want to be stuck inside. No. Yeah. No, I go a little crazy when I... Uh, get stuck i can only usually do a half day or something and then i just gotta shake it off you yeah, know get outside get out and do something um and getting back to the the hillside site um why aren't there more hillside syrah around you know that's a question i always would ask jason and some other friends around town was you know there's i suppose it's just uh something in the future i don't know but everybody's planted in these valleys but it seems to me Syrah might suit some more hillside and some of those mm. limestones and things like that up there. Um, and how'd you end up with that site? That's a well, that that really is fascinating. Uh, Sharon and I were at a, a Sunday Chardonnay tasting, and and this fellow came up to me and said, uh, "Do do you drive around looking for the perfect site in in the bay?" And uh, I said, "Oh." Johnny, in actual fact, I, I ride my horse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm always looking for the, the perfect site. And he said, well, is there one that you've seen and would like to plant but can't? And hand on heart, that was the conversation. And I said, yeah, but I said, it'll never happen because uh, the land is owned by the Glazebrooks and Alwyn will get it. <laughs> He said, what land? And I said, oh, those northerly facing hills along from Bridge Par. And he said, oh, no, no, the Glazebrooks don't own that. Uh, uh, we do. And it grew from there. Johnny nice. and I went for a walk the next week. I met his brother, George, and it all just happened from there. How big is that site? It's not big. Um, we... It's quite a ways back from the road, so it it's is. sort of tough to see, you know. And uh, you, you're only talking in hectares. Um, and uh, and Johnny grows a little bit for himself and uh, some for Aunt Mackenzie. So, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's good. What is special is that the mature plants are not irrigated. Mm. And, and that is... What is unique there? It's I think it's, I have my Pinot down in Martinborough. I was fortunate enough to, am fortunate enough to be working with a grower down there who just let it go in the first few years and just never irrigated. And now we've had these marginal years yep. where, and whether it was a drought or it was a little too much rain and it's just been great, you know, he's got quite a bit of grass down, you know, it just mm. doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter. So... No, well, those plants were irrigated to kick them off, and then the water was turned off. Mm. That's good. Well, it's coming anyway, so we yeah. might as well prepare for it. <laughs> you know, uh, at least so they all that you would see from the signage and the hype around town that you know water conservation order. Yeah, that that is a biggie. It's uh, it's enormous, and uh, there's a lot to be revealed yet. Yeah, I think uh, particularly for the Gibbet gravels and some of these other places it's going to be interesting times ahead but certainly if california has dealt with it we can figure out a way see yes. what, you know 
Uh, and if New Zealand's done nothing else, it's figure out a way. So yeah, we will. Um, I was reminded of something else just now was when I did speak with you years ago, you said, uh, I asked you what you, what your biggest concern was at that stage. And it was, uh, carbon footprint and what that actually meant at that stage, because that was sort of all the talk then was, uh, you know, uh, you know, from the UK and places like that, that they were they were uh, making a big push. That now, not to say that's slowed or stopped or anything, but it was ten years ago, Peter. <laughs> so uh, there's a bit of time to reflect there, and and uh, I don't. I, to be honest, I'm not. I don't remember everything in the conversation, so I'm not exactly sure what you were alluding to. But um, well, we we had just uh, I've just signed up with a new distributor. Um, I trust it all follows through. But the paperwork, as far as WorkSafe, etc., for the UK, it's uh, it's very significant. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, so that's it's something new, and uh, so fingers crossed, everything progresses and uh, we move on. My my former distributor, uh, they they were distillers, mm-hmm. and they sold out to Santori. And now they're back into uh, distilling again. So uh, reboot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Next generation. Okay. And do you ha- head up to the UK quite a bit once a year or something like that? I haven't been for a while, but but earlier on I was as as we established Brookfields, and uh, I dare say everything equal. Yeah, probably have to head up later this year that's been an important market for new zealand always and you found it as well for brookfields yeah yes you know london's wonderful i like yeah. going there sure <laughs> i haven't been to to the i've been all over europe but not to the england ireland uh oh, that's nice someday go to ascot and, and just it's a good place to go and have time out yeah well i'm certainly not um opposed to city life i kind of feel like i can do one or the other it's either out here in the vines in the country or the hustle and bustle of the city it's the suburbs that really scare me you know that's the, where it gets weird for me you know yeah, I, I sort of stop in belgravia and uh uh you know trains take you everywhere or yeah. underground it's all there for you it's wonderful and what other markets uh, uh china is important to us and uh, australia Paris australia yeah so and, what you, and what's uh, whites, reds, everything to Australia? Or yeah, yeah, of, they, they like a bit of Malbec. Yeah, and, yeah, it's uh, a little, it's over there. That's right. It, and and I can certainly say that as far as Australian tourists coming through, they they reach for the sun dried Malbec or the hillside Syrah. They, they you know, those are the two go tos for them. And the yeah, your tasting room steady. Uh, that's a cool little yeah. I would say uh, authentic experience. You know. Yeah, was that always part of like the bricklaying and everything? You know? We we tore out the original windows and put old colonial windows in, nice. and uh, had all the brickwork done. And uh, I just tried to capture a little bit of history. So rather than modernise, we we took the old place back a bit. Yeah, I, my mom uh, when we, they were here in two thousand ten, yes. she really appreciated that. She loved that 
Uh, we went to that tasting and exactly. I gave them all the cheat sheets on oh. what the questions they had to ask <laughs> and everything to try to. They loved it. Yeah, yeah, they had a great time. But we still have some photos in, in uh, my family's house in New Jersey with uh, us under the archways yes. and stuff in there. And because uh, she did all the brickwork in my family's restaurant. And my, oh, really? And, and it was the same type of thing. They went back yeah. rather than go forward. And when they, you know, they took over the family restaurant, which had been in the family since Prohibition, they pulled the walls, you know, basically start pulling the drywall off and they found all this amazing brickwork that had just been covered up, you know, since the 60s or 70s or something. Jeez. And so instead, like you can't put new bricks with old bricks. It kind of looks strange uh, and it looks, you know, on these archways and the windows and everything. So um, when she was driving in and out of the city every day to help, uh, you know, with my grandfather and my uncle in construction, she was pulling over to the demolition site and just taking <laughs> 20 or 30 bricks a day. Yeah. And then, and you know, nobody, it was, it was no bother then. Uh, Philly was certainly in its slightly ruined, slightly rebuild stage in the early 90s there. So coming out of uh, some scary times in the 70s and 80s. But so I think they were happy for little lady to take uh, a bunch of bricks away from her. But, but uh, yeah, we really enjoyed that. So, uh, which makes me keep thinking, I, I got to get back there for a tasting. Um, and that's continuing on strong, man. That's like, it was going for how many years before I got there? Oh, golly, the late 90s. And uh, because, of course, uh, when I worked at McWilliams Wines, Tom McDonald always had, Thursday lunchtime tastings. Yeah. And uh, I much prefer to have the tasting at the end of yes. the day. <laughs> it's not a lot gets done after that. And uh, so when I was chatting with Clive Holland, we thought, well, why not do it? Because the biggest problem a winemaker can face is uh, getting a cellar palate. Yeah. And at that point in time, I, I felt my palate was a little bit on the lighter side as, as far as Spanish and Italian wines were concerned. I'd always drunk a lot of French wine. So I had personal reasons to, to, to be involved and do it. And other than the sheer fact, just love wine. Yeah. So uh, it clicked off, it kicked off from there. And, uh, and I don't know, we've tasted it. Eight thousand plus wines. It's great. It's great. And I must now. It's been only sort of under a year, well, about a year since I probably have some time to do it now again, and I haven't gotten over that way. So, but the problem is now I have a three-year-old. So, you know, maybe I could bring her. I don't know. I'm sure, I've seen some kids running around there at times. She certainly gets it. That's for sure. She wants to smell all the time, but she—that's all she can do—is smell at exactly, this stage. That's cool. <laughs> Um, but getting back to your wines, uh, Sauvignon Blanc, do you do? Or yes, yes, from Ohiti. From Ohiti? Yes. Uh, it goes to Australia, some to China. I think some went to Taiwan. Uh, yeah. And that's uh, stainless steel or? Yes. Yeah. I used to barrel ferment it. Uh, one got favorable write ups with the, the, the wine critics, mm. but the public. They, they want it tank fermented. Mm. So. Yeah, they want fruit driven and yeah. probably affects the price as well, I would imagine. So I hear you loud and clear. Uh, Pinot Gris, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay. Chardonnay, 
it's all barrel fermented. We do the Bergman year in, year out. Um, it has normally 25-30% Malo and uh, and we're doing quite a lot of most of its wild ferment now, certainly with this last year. And uh, then we do the Marshall Bank and it has 50% U Oak when we do it. But I don't do that every year. It's it's just when I have the inclination. Yeah, yeah, when it if it feels right. Yeah. It looks right. And uh we used to make a dry style of the Onier, and then I put it all into sticky. And this year we put down a little bit of dry Viognier, so that's, that's oh, cool. exciting. Yeah. Bit of new oak in there, so it should be ah, nice. I'll be interested to taste that. Doing a bit of Viognier these days from just over behind the yeah. house. Um, any other whites I'm forgetting? No. I must say, I haven't had your Chardonnay in a little while. i got to get into that. That sounds, sounds tempting. Yeah, the danger is to start make, making too many. You can't be everything to everybody. No, no, and no, that's that's why if I do stretch out a little bit, it's very little bits. Like I just made a few barrels of Chardonnay this yeah. year, and you know, just because I love Chardonnay, you know, it's not going to break the bank. No, well, those barrels might in the first start, but after a while, it'll work out. Um, but yeah, no, I hear you. You gotta pick your battles and everything, and then. I don't think there's anything wrong with being able to drink other, you know, I'm not going to make a Syrah and I get to appreciate everybody else's Syrah and, you know, and there's plenty around. And like I said, for the most part, Chardonnay or red blends, like, um, so you mentioned you do straight Cabernet. Is there a, like that's a, the Ohiti estate. We, that's in the estate range. So we do the Ohiti estate Cabernet. <clears throat> we do the Burnfoot Merlot, the Backblock Syrah. And uh, they're all at the same price point as the Bergman and the Savoir. And do you uh, do any a blend at the higher next level or something? Yes, yeah. in the reserve bracket, and the gold label was a Cab Merlot. Cab Merlot, yeah, I think I've got a bottle of that in the cellar from and, fifteen. Uh, obviously, the Syrah Hillside Syrah Straight. Uh, we occasionally do a Highland Merlot Cab, and of course, we do the Sun Dried Merlot. That's in that next level. It would have it's, to be. But at a cheaper price. But the uh, recommended retail, or they call it everyday price, yeah. is now <laughs> about 26 27 for the sun-dried. Oh, cool. So it's accessible. Yeah, yeah, it has to be. That's about where I think a good Malbec should be, you yeah. know. Um, and, yeah, like you said, every year something different, but you don't see... Any, there's no vineyard, new vineyards coming in line or anything at this stage? Yeah. No. I see you have uh, struck another strong cellar hand again. Nice, big, tall guy. <laughs> I think you're on like three or four in a row there. But. You know, Carl's marvelous, <laughs> Carl Nicholson. And uh, I think Carl's been with me five years. Had Dean Wishart prior to Carl for five years. And uh, I look around and... and uh, Christopher Key at Gibson. Christopher was back in the 90s. Um, and, uh, yeah, had quite a, quite a, I've been very lucky. Yeah, well, I, some would say luck. Some would say good choosing as well, you know. Yeah, no, they, they tend to come down the drive. And, uh, you know, Carl rang up before Dean finished up. And I just said, I'll give you first refusal when Dean steps out. And uh, that's what happened. So, uh, no, it's good. Yep. And, uh, and Carl's great. He's, 
he's enthusiastic he's dedicated and hearts in the right place and and we we both want the same thing we yeah you want to make good wines and yes. and not go too crazy while you're doing it and no. yeah yeah and, and What's the overall size of the production now? Brookfields varies from 150 to 200 ton. Mm -hmm. uh, So we're not too big. And a few weddings to keep you guys busy as well? Yeah, that helps. Uh, Yeah, very definitely. My daughter's the function manager, so uh, it's it's in the family. I think that's one of the first times I've done that. I just left my old phone on. Um, cool. So what, what, uh, what are you looking forward to? What's, what's, you know, what's, 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 what's you know, what else? You know? Uh, every year as it comes and, uh, one day there will be a time to step out, step down, whatever. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, I'm just as passionate as ever. We had a marvelous visit this year, uh, vintage this year, uh, it, it, it was just a, a wonderful vintage for us. The reds are outstanding. As I agree. Say, yeah. made Marshall Bank, and uh, uh, we'd done the work during the growing season, and uh, all those things are, are terribly important. It, it, it starts in the vineyard. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one thing I was kind of getting at when I said you're on the tractor, is you seem to be in it, in the vineyard, and yeah. out, out on the site and everything. You're not... Somebody who's uh, just waiting for the fruit to show up and say, "What happened?" You yeah. know. No, it's uh, there's little things. It's it's attention to detail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, good man. I mean, I think uh, you know, covered it all, didn't we? Is there, are you good? Yeah, 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 yeah. cool. No, yeah. enjoyed the chat. Yeah, yeah. It was too easy, right? Yeah, I think we could probably do it again soon. You know, I'll have some more pressing questions for you. You know, cheers, Peter. Thanks. Really appreciate. It. There he is, the great Peter Robertson. Thank you again, Peter. It was great to catch up on some old memories. Don't forget to check out brookfieldsvineyards.co.nz, kariwine.com, and of course, the promo code dbpodcast on decibelwines.com for 10% off. See you guys soon. James Milton next should get spooky. Spooky.